Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, and welcome to Season 4 of the podcast. The episode you're about to listen to is the first part of a multi-part solo series called Ideologies of the Ancients, and that's just what it sounds like. It's an ideological history of the ancient world, or certain parts of the ancient world, I should say. I've been working on this project for a little bit now, and I'm really excited to bring you the result, or at least the first part of it. It's quite a long episode, so I'm not going to do much in the way of introduction, and I think as you get into the episode you'll see I bring up the questions that I'm trying to give answers to as I go, so I don't think I really need to preface it with anything. The only thing I'll say just before I get started is if you like this type of um product or content, you think it's valuable, interesting, informative, or even provocatively wrong, then please do consider supporting it. There's two ways you can do that. The first is to just share with friends, you know, know, share on your social media, forward it to someone, recommend to someone, whatever seems right to you. The other is um, to sponsors on Patreon. So you have a big stream of uninterrupted long-form content, same as with my interviews, that is absolutely advertisement-free, and my pledge to you is to keep it that way. I think advertisements sort of spoil podcasts, and I think as you're listening to this, if we had to pause every 15 minutes to do an ad, I don't think the quality would be anywhere near as high, and it's also free. I never want to charge for this product. The whole point is that anybody can access to it. So the way I cover the costs of the podcast is I just ask you all for money. And I'm pretty straight up about that. Like, there's, you know, so many different ways you can fund it. And I think just saying, hey, you know, if you like this, consider chipping in is the most ethically comfortable for me, honestly. So we have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And I've been suggesting $2 an episode. So if the episode you're about to listen to is as invigorating and stimulating, or as bitter and unpalatable as a cup of coffee, consider sponsoring it on that basis. That's just a suggestion. You want to do more or less? Whatever's right for you. And again, as always, um, I'm really genuinely grateful for anyone who does any of those things. If you are sponsoring the podcast, you've uh, made it possible for me to uh, nerd out for several weeks reading a bunch of ancient sources and modern theory and put this thing together, and um, I hope you'll see that it's a product of love. I really... uh, I uh, really got into this one. So if you are sponsoring it, thank you so much, genuinely. Um, If you are not, then, you know, consider consider doing so. If you have a few extra bucks and you think this is valuable, you know, at least check out the Patreon, have a think about it, you know, see what you can do. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. As I said, I loved making this series. I love this material, and I hope you enjoy the result. This is Ideologies of the Ancients, Part 1, Ashurbanipal.
Is there such a thing as elite ideology? Or an ideology of elites? Put differently, there's been many elites throughout history, there's many elites around the world. Is there a common thread to what they believe and how they justify their power? Perhaps more fundamentally, is there some characteristic of being in power, being a political or economic or military elite, that sort of causes you to believe certain things? and to justify that power in a particular way. Now, I got to thinking about this question because when I've done a lot of my solo series, I've certainly usually had an instinctive bias against the powerful. I'm always a sort of pro-democratization, pro-powerless type of thinker, no matter how I approach things. But a lot of the pushback I got not even pushback, questions, comments, concerns, what have you, revolved around how I discussed the ideology, or just simply what powerful people tend to believe. And a lot of people seemed to be implicitly or explicitly operating under the assumption that, yes, there, there is such a thing as the ideology, the singular of political elites, and that to the extent that I'm talking about a reconciliation between the activist wing and the elites of the Democratic Party, or if I'm talking in the sort of broader historical national context about the need for us to fight for a progressive ideology, both within populations and within elite spaces, I'm essentially displaying a sort of naivete about this fact. I'm assuming erroneously that elites are persuadable in some sense, or even just that there is a plurality of different ideological views within elites. Elites, people seem to want to say, might justify their power in a number of different ways. They might use a number of different rhetorics, and certainly throughout history and throughout the world, they've done so. But there's sort of a common core here. They're out for themselves. They're out to defend their own power, and perhaps the power of their class more broadly, and anything else is sort of window dressing. Now, I do not want to deny that there is a lot of truth to that narrative. There's a lot of truth to it today. There's a lot of truth to it throughout history. What I do want to do, though, is sort of play around with it a little bit, to push and pull at it at the edges, to maybe look at it from a number of different vantage points, a number of different frameworks. And in doing so, what I'm not trying to do is to talk you out of an anti-elite sentiment. I think an anti-elite sentiment, as we shall explore throughout this series, is understandable and reasonable and um, natural is perhaps a bit of a dangerous word in philosophy, but inevitable, shall we say. No, what I'm trying to do is to get you to see that 
that is one particular pair of glasses through which you can look at the world and look at powerful elites in particular. And as I've just said, it's a pair of glasses that a lot of the world makes a lot of sense, right? (laughs) A lot of sense when looking at it through. My thought is merely this. It's not the only pair of glasses. It's not the only interpretive framework. It's not the only fundamental paradigm or whatever long philosophy, analytic-y words that we want to use. And so I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this, because I knew that I sort of essentially to that statement wanted to say, not no, but more like yes, but. But I kind of didn't know what followed that but. And so... As I was thinking about it, a particular anecdote from history kept coming back to me. And I say anecdote because who knows if this is true. I personally have an intuition that this is true, this is historical, but that's just a guess. So let's go back, considerably back, to the ancient world. And I think in some ways this might allow us to test out different pairs of glasses more easily because we don't have the same ideological gut feelings and biases about the ancient world. It's sort of a laboratory where we can try out some of these ideas. But let's go way back um, to about 540-550 BC. This is at the very beginning of where we start our ancient histories, the sort of ancient city-states in Greece are sort of forming, we have an Athens, we have a Sparta, but they're right at the beginning of their history. On the mainland, I guess, as they would have thought of it back then, but in the ancient Near East, the Middle East, we sometimes call it somewhat politically incorrectly today, um, a new empire is forming, which is that of the Persians. Now, If you know anything about ancient history, you'll know there's going to be some drama between the Greeks and the Persians. But the anecdote I have in mind is before all that. And this may be the first recorded meeting we have. The Persian king, the founder of the Persian Empire, Cyrus, has conquered a lot of what is now Iran and Iraq and Turkey and that sort of area. And the Greeks are concerned by this because they have a number of colonies and settlements on what they call the Ionian coast, but today I guess think Israel, Lebanon, that sort of area, right? So anyway, this is the first, possibly the first recorded meeting between these two different civilizations. And I'll give you the secondary source first, which gives you like all of the colour and the drama of it. So this is from Tom Holland's Persian Fire. Quote, Back in the years of the Persian rise to greatness, while Cyrus was still in Lydia, sorry, Lydia, sort of modern-day Turkey, sorry, back to the text, he found himself unexpectedly visited by a delegation from across the Aegean Sea, The ambassadors were Greek, but quite different from the Greeks of Asia, whose cities, prosperous and tempting, Cyrus was plotting at that very moment to crush and make his own. The strangers wore their hair long, they sported distinctive red cloaks, and they spoke 
not with that subtlety and sense of propriety that conventionally marked an ambassador's language, but brusquely, bluntly, rudely. The message they gave, the greatest king on earth, was simple. Cyrus should leave the cities on the Ionian coast well alone. If he did not, he would answer to them who had sent them, the Spartans. Evidently, the strangers felt that the mere mention of this name was sufficient to chill the blood, for they added nothing more. Cyrus, turning from them, was obliged to summon a nearby Ionian attendant. Tell me, he demanded, all bemusement, who are the Spartans? End quote. So, this anecdote gets a certain amount of play because it conforms to a certain sort of heroic myth we have about the Greeks and the Spartans in particular. You know, the ultimate badasses, the movie 300 and the last movie 300 and all of that. And I'll say just off the bat, I kind of don't buy the myth that the Spartans told about themselves and that a lot of the rest of history has gone down to believe and, you know, just, oh my gosh, weren't they so cool and so tough and whatever. You know, the Spartans were an interesting and distinctive little mini-civilization, um, but the idea that they were just heroic, unstoppable badasses can be checked somewhat by history. The Spartans had their moment as a dominant land power in Greece, but they certainly also had a lot of, you know, defeats and set and rebellions of their slaves and so on. So I tell that story not because, oh my gosh, you know, how cool the Spartans are. What I find absolutely fascinating about that story and what I've been returning to again and again and again in my head is not what the Spartans said, it's what Cyrus said back to them. So let's go directly to Herodotus, who's our primary source for this. Um, quoting from his histories. When the herald had proclaimed this, Cyrus is said to have asked the Greeks who were present, how many and in what number these Lacedaemonians were who made this declaration, end quote. Lacedaemonians, by the way, is what the Greeks would have called Spartans. So that's just Lacedaemonians means Spartans. And if we're on historical accuracy, Cyrus is what we call him now and what I would what I'm going to be calling him through this series. Um, the original actually sounds much cooler. The original is Kurash. Doesn't, I mean, that just sounds better, but I'm going to stick with um, modern pronunciations and terminology just for simplicity. But anyway, continuing on from Herodotus, he's just like essentially said, yeah, who, what, who are these guys again? Um, quote, when he was told, he said to the Spartan herald, I have never yet feared men who set apart a place in the middle of their city where they lie to themselves and deceive each other. They, if I keep my health, shall talk of their own misfortunes, not those of the Ionians. End quote. So he's given the response that you would expect this guy to give. He's essentially said, get out of my face. What are, you, what are you talking about? Like, you're some tiny city on the edge of the world, and I'm the king of kings. Get, get out of here with that. Which is what you'd expect, right? That's sort of like a fairly typical realpolitik response. What I find fascinating is the reason he gives. Now, whether or not you think, you know, 
all elite ideology is just sort of a self-justification of power. We'll get back to the different models we can approach this in. What's the reason he, he gives? Um, he's not listening to them, and he's going to ignore them, because they set aside a place in the middle of their city where they lie to each other. Well, what does that mean? And Herodotus seems aware that even his audience isn't going to know what that means. Um, so continuing from Herodotus, quote, He uttered this threat against all the Greeks because they have markets and they buy and sell there. For the Persians themselves were not used to resorting to markets at all, nor do they have a market of any kind. End quote. So that's the anecdote. So what I find fascinating about this is, you know, the story's the story. So a group of people comes in whose estimation of their own badassness or scariness probably exceeds the reality, and someone who actually has real significant power. So, you know, just get out of here with that. What are you doing? But what he said is, I can't respect you because you have markets. Now, if you think about the Middle East today, probably you know, Damascus or you know, one of these, you know, markets are the first things that come to mind, right? You think of these big bazaars, all these spices and fine cloths are sold, and I'm stereotyping, I know, but certainly it is the case that there are a lot of markets in the contemporary Middle East. That wasn't the case back then. As Herodotus tells us, this wasn't an institution that the Persians had. And what's more, the, the one of the things that prevented them from adopting it was ideological. Central to the Persian moral vision of the world was that you always tell the truth. Well, okay, we all, all agree to that. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that that's much more demanding than we would interpret it. If you go and you say, oh, you know, these spices, this particular oil lamp, it's worth this much, right? That could easily be considered a lie. And you're like, what do you mean it's a lie? That's just your asking price. Well, to them, it's not. Say you haggle and you negotiate, right? Again, a sort of stereotypical feature of Middle Eastern markets as we think about them is haggling. But to them, if you say, it's worth this much, and this is what I'm selling it for, and then someone says, oh, I'll give you this. And they go, oh, you know, how about this? How about that? And you haggle, right? Well, then you've just proved yourself a liar. I thought you said it was worth this much. Now you're changing your mind? So this institution is alien to them. And what's fascinating about this to me is there's this paradigm, and it's a very anachronistic paradigm, where we just assume, because our elites are so wholly motivated by it now, that all elites throughout history have basically been rationally self-interested. Right? That they're basically out to secure money and power and goods for themselves. And that's sort of the be-all and end-all, and anything else, like I say, is window dressing. But what's interesting about this reply is he's rejected the Greeks. And, you know, you can say he was always going to reject the Greeks. What else could he do with that? But the reason he's given to reject them is that they have what has to be the most obvious institutional manifestation of rational self-interest, right? What is, what is, you know, if you have rational self-interest as a model and you try to set up institutions that sort of give it free reign and dignify it, what do they look like? Well, markets, presumably, right? And this isn't unique 
to the Persians, by the way. The particular sort of moral underpinning, the way it came out about truth-telling, that's quite a distinctively Persian thing. But a lot of aristocratic elites throughout history, that is to say sort of you know, landed gentries, hierarchical structures, sort of the people sitting on top of a pyramid, you know, who've been there for a long time and have long family names and so on, um, a lot of them have a real thing about money handling. It's not that they don't have money, it's not that they're, like, against being rich, they're often fabulously rich, but the actual putting your hands on it, trading, making commercial interactions is seen as beneath them, and not more than that, it's seen as dirty. So if I think about the sort of aristocratic elites of the European Middle Ages, all the way into the early modern period, there's, there is this thing where... They don't like it. It's sort of alien to them. It's very secondary. It's something the people beneath them do in order to support their position and status. And having elites who glorify in their commercial transactions, that's actually a very modern thing. That really only comes in with, you know, as a Marxist would call it, capitalist ideology. And by sort of saying as I think it is our instinct to do, that there must be something fundamentally dishonest about Cyrus's reply, that he didn't surely really believe this somehow, or if he did, it was entirely secondary. You know, I, I think there's something a bit naive about that. I think we're just taking a particular historical paradigm, we're taking a particular model of how people behave, which is very modern, and was only invented in the past 300 years, and saying, well, everyone was just like this. Well, no, in the same way as, like, you know, the idea of fundamental equality between the genders, like, if we just went and said anyone who says something different in history, they're just lying, well, well, no, this is, these are modern constructions. And so, so here's the thought. Here's the thought on which this entire series is going to hinge. Let's go back to some of these ancient sources. Let's look at how powerful people, the most powerful people in those days, explained and justified and dignified and, you know, trumpeted their power to the world. And let's try and look at it just taking off those glasses. Those glasses that elites are sort of pragmatic and rationally self-interested, and that they essentially behave like modern capitalists, just with the trappings of this sort of feudal nobility around them. But at the heart, they think like modern capitalists. Let's take off that pair of glasses and see how the world looks once we've taken that pair of glasses off. Now, you can't have no pair of glasses, right? You know, I'm going to read you some of the primary sources for how these ancient Near Eastern kings justified themselves. And you're going to have to interpret it in some way, otherwise it's just words. So the thought experiment of these series is let's take these primary sources, some secondary, but I'm primarily going to be using primary sources in this series. Let's take these primary sources and just try out different pairs of glasses. So, 
There's a Marxist pair of glasses for looking at what's going on with ideology, which I think is quite distinct from assuming everyone is a sort of modern capitalist. There are sort of hermeneutic schools. There's um, this sort of Machiavellian idea of cycles of domination that I'm going to explore. And let's just start by doing that without trying to search for some final conclusion or ultimate truth that unites all of the different ideas we might have about what elites believe. You know, we just have these objects, these historical artifacts, these texts that have come down to us. Let's see how we look if we allow ourselves to take off the glasses that assume all elites have a particular ideology, and it's essentially the ideology of modern capitalist elites. Let's take that pair of glasses off, and we can put it back on again from time to time, and I'm going to, to sort of check notes. But let's take that off and start just experimenting. What seems to make sense? And the thought experiment here is I'm going to try and do my best to show you a series of different pairs of glasses and sort of argue... Actually, once you get them on, a lot of them make real sense. And then some others make real sense. And that once you're in that frame, once you're wearing that pair of glasses, it does seem to make the world make sense to you. So that's the thought experiment, which is going to occupy us for some time now. So let's get back to Cyrus, right? Now, this moment where the Greeks first meet the Persians, that seems to be the very beginning of our history, right? The very beginning of this sort of, um, what's been sometimes referred to as the Plato to NATO narrative, right? Which is, of course, we should say, a very sort of Western-centric, some people have argued even quite racist view of the world, right? It would not have looked that way to Cyrus. To Cyrus, who is going to be a huge ideological innovator in his own right, to Cyrus, it would look like he is coming in at the tail end of so much history. He, in many ways, you can argue about whether Cyrus saw himself as an innovator or a restorer, a bringing back of the old order. Well, so in order to approach Cyrus then, I want to ask what was that old order he thought he was bringing back? or arguably thought he was bringing back. Because in order to explain Cyrus's ideological project, which is one of the most fascinating, I think, in the history of all the world, and one of the most open to different interpretations, and so many people have such radically divergent ideas of what is this dude doing here, right? I think you have to take a step back by a few generations to look at what are the ideological resources he's drawing on? What is the history that he's coming into? So Cyrus, when he meets the Greeks, is towards the middle, towards the middle to end of a rapid campaign of expansion, which is basically going to conquer, I mean, to him, the known world. What today we would call the Fertile Crescent, so um, sort of Mesopotamia, Egypt, Turkey, that sort of area, right? One of the most successful conquerors in world history, 
and arguably the most successful conqueror at that point in world history. But what he's doing, essentially, is he's filling a power vacuum that was created about 40 years before with the collapse of the last great empire, the Assyrian Empire. And Cyrus would certainly have had a sense of this history. All of the people in this world had a sense of just how old this world was, and they weren't wrong. Now, when I say this world, I'm sort of talking about the ancient Fertile Crescent, right? That sort of area that we might call the Middle East, Turkey and so on, today. That is where the first city sprang up, something like 6,000 years ago. So, when we get to this point in history, Civilised societies, settled cities, have been existing for much longer from these people, from Cyrus and the Greeks, than they are to us. The world is already thousands of years old, and it's an interconnected world. They are aware of the different civilizations in this region. Now, in the context of world history, they aren't the only civilizations. There are civilizations growing up in the Indus Valley in India, there are civilizations in China. I think the civilizations of the America, you know, the Incas and the Aztecs and all that, they come in a little bit later. Um, Africa will develop great civilizations prior to colonization. Um, but at this time in history, Africa hasn't had its agrarian revolution yet. Um, and a lot of Europe, excepting, you know, some of the parts we care about, like you know, Greece and so on, haven't really built up these big civilized structures yet but in this part of the world they've been around for a long time they've been around for longer than the time from cyrus to us and so to give you a sense of this i'm going to read you the opening couple of paragraphs from a.t olmsted's history of the persian empire this is a book a lot of people love and is very special to them um and i i don't i haven't fell in love with it as, as much as some people have. But the introduction <clears throat> is is um, magnificent, and it really gives you a sense of how erroneous it is to think about this period as sort of the start of history. So, quoting from chapter 1, quote, When Cyrus entered Babylon in 539 BC, the world was old. More significant the world knew its antiquity. Its scholars had compiled long dynastic lists, and simple addition appeared to prove that kings whose monuments were still visible had ruled more than four millenniums before. Yet earlier were other monarchs, sons of gods and so themselves demigods, whose reigns covered several generations of present-day short-lived men. Even these were preceded, the Egyptians believed, by the gods themselves who had held sway through long eons before the universal flood. The Babylonians placed at least ten kings, the least of whom ruled for 18,600 years, the greatest for 43,200. Other peoples knew of this flood, and told of monarchs, Nucasius of Iconium, for example, who reigned in pre-Diluvian times. The sacred history of the Jews extended 4,000 years, Modest as were their figures composed, compared with those of Babylon and Egypt, they recorded that one pre-Diluvian monarch almost reached the millennium mark before his death. 
Greek poets chanted a legendary history which was counted backwards to the time when genealogies of heroes ascended to the god. Each people and nation, each former city-state, boasted its own creation story with its own local god as creator. Worship of the remote national past was a special characteristic of these closing days of the Olden Orient. Nabu Naid, the last independent king of the Chalidians, rejoiced when he unearthed the foundation record of Narim Singh, unseen for 3,200 years, or so his scholars informed him. His inscriptions are filled with references to rulers long since dead, from Ur-Namaru and his son Shuglai, founders of the third dynasty of Ur, through the great lawgiver Hammurabi and the Kashirite Bunarashtabtal, to the Assyrian conquerors of almost his own day, a stretch of at least 15 centuries. Ancient temples were restored, ancient cults received their annual ancient ritual, and his daughter consecrated to an ancient temple office. End quote. And Olmsted goes on to say that Nabu Naid was far from the only ruler who was absolutely obsessed with history. A lot of these ancient rulers in this period were absolute history nerds. They loved it, and it was a central part of how they presented themselves and justified themselves. And that this is certainly a characteristic of the ruler with whom I'm going to, to start this series. So I said Cyrus, who I started with that anecdote, was essentially filling a power vacuum. Another way of thinking about it is that he's trying to stitch back together again an old order which had collapsed, leaving chaos in its wake. So, in Western history, by analogy, you might think of the fact that after the Western Roman Empire falls, there's a number of attempts to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So the Byzantines, or I guess the Eastern Roman Empire, depending on how you want to look at it, they're going to come back in and reinvade Sicily and Italy and Africa and try and be like, Let, let's get Rome back on its feet, let's put this egg back together again, and they'll fail, that'll collapse almost within a generation, and then various other people are going to come along, and they have a sense of this great past, but they can never, they can never get it back on its feet, and, you know, history just rolls on. Well, Cyrus is, in some ways, going to be able to get it back on its feet, and as I said before, the sort of ancient order, which they're all living in the shadow of, is Assyria. And Assyria is a great empire. The Assyrians, by the way, had been around for thousands and thousands of years before this, but more recently in the history had gone from like a regional power to just a world empire dominating, you know, their own capital of Nineveh and Asher, uh, conquering Babylon, conquering um, territories that were called the Elamites um, out in what's um, maybe Iran today, coming um, west into, um, you know, Turkey and the Ionian coast, even at times um, making Egypt a client kingdom. And they attained this huge power, and we don't really 
talk about them that much. They were in some ways the first people to build a modern army. They built huge and amazing cities, and we are increasingly discovering a lot of their written records, because, um, like many ancient peoples, they wrote on clay tablets and then fired the tablets, um, and those just last. They Like, if they're in the sand somewhere, they basically just last forever, and so they're available. Now, historically, the texts we've had to us have been Greek and Latin, and that's where our sort of ancient um, history has come from. And so this older empire, and as well as others before it, by the way, um, have been neglected, and thankfully now, um, it is beginning to come back into something that people are interested in studying. And there's a lot of great content online. I listen to a lot of podcasts and video lectures in preparation from this that have been exploring, you know, Assyrian culture and how, like, impressive a lot of their sort of literary and artistic achievements were. You know, their power. This is, this is until Cyrus comes along, going to be the most powerful, you know, let's say empire state is perhaps the wrong word, but the most powerful state that's ever existed, certainly the most powerful army that's ever existed. The first, by the way, to be equipped all with iron weapons. That turns out to make a big difference. And then the final thing, and something that Assyria's always been known for, is how violent they were. Now, a lot of, I think, historians of Assyria will want to push back on this, and I'm going to get to some of the different arguments about it. But historically, you know, when we look at the records of other peoples with whom the Assyrians had to deal or had to be subjugated by them, Assyria seems to stand out relative to the time, and even relative to the time, as unusually violent, both in the scale of the state-sanctioned violence that they'd use and in its intensity. So... I'm going to start this series with a quick look at the last great king of Assyria. Not Maybe arguably not quite the last king, but the last one who reigned for a good long time, and that's Ashurbanipal. Um, took me a while to learn how to say it, but Ashurbanipal, I believe is right. Now, when he comes to power, he is inheriting an empire that you know, has all of the sort of power and culture and whatever that I've described. But that's not to say he sits on his hands. He's going to be ferocious in maintaining this empire and putting down rebellions and so on. And what I love about this is even though we don't look at this bit of history much, we have a lot of primary sources on this guy. So there's a lot of inscriptions, there's a lot of cylinders, there's a lot of Calais tablets. And unlike a lot of people, when you go back this far in history and records are spotty and it's all second-guessing and you're often looking at some text that seems old but was actually written 300 years after the fact, um, we have him in his own words, and we have him in his own words quite extensively. So I've just found some source books online that just compile all this stuff together. Um... And I've just been reading through it, and I find him a really interesting dude. So this is 669 to 631 BCE, so a little under, you know, 50 to 100 years before the Cyrus and the Greek moment that I, uh, that I opened with. And so I'm just going to read you some of these primary sources. You know, this is the guy in his own words. 
you know, separated by 2,600 years from us, and certainly talking in a very different world, a world very alien to us. But we can still hear what he had to say, and let's just have a look at some of these, and then have a look at what in different interpretive frames might make of them. So, this is how he describes himself. Quote, I am Ashurbanipal, offspring of Ashur and Belet, the oldest prince of the royal harem, whose name Ashur and Sin, lord of the tiara, have named for kingship at its earliest days, whom they formed in his mother's womb for the rulership of Assyria, whom Shamash, Adad, and Ishtar, by their unalterable decree, have ordered to exercise sovereignty. Arashadon, king of Assyria, the father who begot me, respected the words of Ashur and Belit, his tutory, when they gave him command that I should exercise sovereignty. In the month of A, lord of mankind, the twelfth day, an auspicious day, the feast of Gula, at the sublime command of Ashur, Belit, Sin, Samash, Abad, Bel, Nabu, Ishtar of Nineveh, Queen of Kimarari, Ash Ishtar of Abar, Utra, Nigal, Nusku uttered, he gathered up the people of Assyria, great and small, from the upper to the lower sea, that they would accept my crown princeship, and later my kingship. He made them take oath by the great gods, so he strengthened the bonds between them and me. End quote. And I probably butchered a bunch of those names. I've been looking it up and trying to do my best with them. But that's how the guy introduces himself in his own words. And it does... This reads as coming to you from an alien world, right? Like, it's almost like something some alien conqueror might say in a movie where they just list all these lineages that you've never heard of, right? And the ancient world is alien to us. That's something... I'm going to be stressing throughout this. But, even though these are not people necessarily like us, they see the world through very different lenses, I think some big things jump out at us there. He's really wanting to hammer home two points here. His lineage and divine approval, right? That's essentially what that boils down to. The first name he mentions, he says, I am Ashabal, offspring, or creature, apparently is another translation. I am Ashabanapal, creature of Ashur. Ashur is like the primary god to them. And that is a big part of the ideological justification of his rule. So just quoting a little bit from a history of the ancient Near East by Mark van Dimmerup. Um, he says, quote, The full focus on the person of the king in these interactions was a result of the ideological basis of rule in Assyria. The king, as representative of the god Ashur, represented order. Wherever he was in control, there was peace, tranquility, and justice. And where he did not rule, there was chaos. End quote. So, very much like, you know, the European monarchs, and aristocrats with whom we are more familiar. He's very keen to stress lineage and a sort of divine approval of that lineage. 
and also like Nabu Naid, who Olmsted mentioned in his opening. This is someone who's absolutely fascinated with history, and not just as a rhetorical gloss, he apparently seems to have taken a real personal interest in it. And Ashurbanipal, one of the interesting facts about him, is he apparently created in Nineveh, the capital city, the world's first large-scale library. Not a library in like a collection of books as we think about it, but these sort of clay tablets and cylinders that they, that they used back then. And he really revels in the fact that he's multilingual and he can speak dead languages, much like, again, and, the, and this analogy is going to break down, by the way, but a lot of European aristocrats would really like to show off the fact that they were fluent in Latin and Greek and Hebrew and all of these dead languages. So this is another direct quote from Ashurbanipal. Quote, I, Ashurbanipal, within the palace, understood the wisdom of Nabu, all the art of writing of every kind. I made myself a master of them all. I read the cunning tablets of Sumer and the dark Arcadian language, which is difficult to rightly use. I took pleasure in reading stones inscribed before the flood, the best of the scribal art, such works as none of the kings who went before me ever learnt, remedies from the top of the head to the toenails, non-canonical sections, clever teachings, whatever pertains to the medical mastery of the gods, I wrote on tablets, checked, collated, and deposited within my palace for pursuing and reading." End quote. So to, towards the end there, um, that seems to be reference to, to his library. And apparently people think he wasn't sort of like just making this up. Um, the historian uh, Paul Kowazek um, notes that it's not an idle boast. There's actual proof that Ashurbanipal could compose um, cuneiform and that there are tablets in you know different languages signed by Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria. And again, this is sort of quite common to aristocratic elites, isn't it? That they have hobbies. That, that some, does seem to be like a recurring theme that you find in history. So, what's, what's our interpretation of all that? Well, let's start with Marxism. Why not? I haven't done much Marxism on the show. But let's start with the Marxist interpretive frame. So we have these objects, we have this dude really enforcing lineage, really obsessed with history, obsessed with learning, obsessed with the languages of the past, and very, very keen to stress direct divine sanction for all of it. That's just like some data, but how do we interpret that data? Well, let's take a, a historical materialist or materialism approach to this. Now, I think and I would argue that this is subtly different or arguably not at all subtly different, to the sort of rational self-interest view, which I said at the beginning I find in some respects inadequate. So let's not start with a rational self-interest interpretation. Rational self-interest gives people a lot of um, agency. It's like people are going to do what's in their self-interest, but, you know, they can determine what that is, and they can act in quite different ways depending on how their incentives structure them. Um, 
Historical materialism is a bit deeper than that. It's the idea that beliefs are secondary to structures, primarily economic structures, at least in sort of like classical Marxism. And let me give you an example to try and make sense of this claim. And I think this will sort of make intuitive the, the method that I'm going to uh, uh, bring to it. And I take this from uh, Charles A. Anderson's wonderful lectures on the history of political thought. So there's sort of two ideas, or two big ways of looking at it, or two different ends of the spectrum, I think it's in some ways more accurate, in sort of interpreting you know, the change in societies, the change in structures, and the change in ideological beliefs throughout history. At one end of the spectrum, you have materialism, which says economic institutions come first, ideas come second. At the other hand, you get what you call idealism. Now, that means something a little different to what it does in everyday parlance. It doesn't mean idealistic, like starry-eyed, or whatever like that. It means the converse, that ideas come first, and structures come second. People have ideas, and they build institutions that reflect ideas. Now, idealism can seem, you know, more to the conventional way of thinking. I believe X is right, therefore I do X. That, that seems fairly logical, right? Here's a metaphor, again coming from Charles A. Anderson, that I think makes total sense of the materialism theory. And this is just sort of like an intuition. But imagine you have a friend who applies for or gets an offer for a new job that she doesn't really want, right? And she's like, you know, I don't like this company. I've read on the news that they do some unethical stuff. And I just, you know, even just looking at the job, I, just, I don't know, I feel like I'd, I'd be really bored there. But, um, you know, I'll check it out. What the heck? And they go... And she hears, oh, wait, it pays how much? Oh, that's like, it's more than double my current salary. Yes, I'm definitely interested. Yeah, no, and you give all your interview answers, right? And say they like her, and she starts work there. And pretty soon, that initial ideological opposition to the company just sort of filters away. And she starts saying, you know, no, actually, this is... This is something I really want to do, you know? And she starts absorbing the sort of internal ideology of the company. You know how all big organisations have particular rhetorics to explain what she's doing? And it's not fake. She's not believing one thing and saying another. She's really sort of come to feel this is something I want to do. And, you know, this makes sense. And, I, you know, now I've learned more. I agree with what they're doing. I've changed my mind, right? Now, I think that story is so intuitive to all of us, right? You can all think of a situation where you've seen someone do something kind of like that, or you've done it yourself even, right? And your, your beliefs have just adjusted to the underlying economic reality. And again, it's not like you're pretending to think something you've not. You've just, you've genuinely started thinking this, how much of what you believe, honestly, if you're really honest, is just sort of what someone within the structures that you're within, what they're going to believe, right? It's the only way you can make sense of it. Now, the hardcore materialist will say that you can just map that up to everything, that nothing else 
really matters, and that if you can look at what the sometimes called the substructure, but essentially like the economic institutions, the structural constraints, maybe the political institutions, but really what Marxists call the mode of production. How are goods produced and where do they go, right? If you can look at the mode of production without looking at anything else, you'll be able to predict what political structure and what ideological structure that society will have. Now, that seems like a bit of a bold claim, but let's just try it out on Ashurbanipal, right? Now, I should say, just to quickly get this out the way, the historical Marx, you know, the person Marx, his analysis of the ancient Near East was kind of trash, and even hardcore Marxists today, who I'm going to read you some of, will own that it's kind of trash. So he called this the Asiatic mode of production, and he said, you know, this is like pre-slave, feudal, they build large earthworks in India, the Euphrates, the Nile River valleys, hence Asiatic, which again, a lot of the terms we're using to describe this are not super politically correct these days. And the idea sort of is the mode of production is that exploited labour, which they called corvée labour, which again I think has become a problematic term, is extracted during the slack period of the year. So, you know, you're working on the harvest or whatever, when you have downtime, the government will sort of come in and make you build a pyramid or a ziggurat. And Marx said, this is going to just disappear from history quite fast, and it did because of the unproductive use of this surplus. So in Marx's sense, you know, the worker makes stuff, they use some of it themselves, but then there's extra stuff that the state takes. And Marx said, you know, this Asiatic mode of production is not very good, it's not an efficient use of the surplus, and so Asiatic temp empires tend to be doomed to, to fall into decay. Now that that is obviously inadequate, because these empires lasted for a freaking long time. And if you don't just take it as an empire, but you take it as a particular set of social institutions and cities, you know, that, that were ruled over by different empires from time to time, those, th these quote-unquote Asiatic modes of production lasted longer than any other mode of production in human history. Again, this goes back thousands of years before Cyprus. It lasts much longer, much longer, many times longer than what? Roman Empire, which was quite long-lived, longer than the feudal period, much longer than the capitalist age, right? So that's inadequate. But in a way, it's just sort of failing its own premises. So can modern Marxism do any better? Well, I actually think it can. Um, and one idea that modern Marxism introduces is this idea that the mode of production doesn't need to be singular. It can be plural. There can be modes of production. And that'll actually help make a lot more sense of um, this Assyrian ideological superstructure. So this is uh, Frederick Jameson in The Political Unconscious, Narrative as a Socially Symbolic Act. Um, and he writes, quote, every social formation 
or historically existing society has in fact consisted in the overlay and structural coexistence of several modes of production all at once, including vestiges and survivals of older modes of production, as well as anticipatory tendencies which are potentially incoherent with the existing system but have not yet generated an, auto an autonomous space of their own." End quote. So, just to summarise, the idea that societies are always in a state of change, and therefore there's sort of going to be different modes of production coming in and out, and to some degree they might coexist and sort of contradict each other at the same time. So I think that seems to, to clearly make sense, right? Like clearly at one point sort of capitalism and market economies were sort of coexisting with like the guild system and were coexisting with like the feudal mode of production right and so a marxist would look at that and say ah so what you'd expect to get in that sort of pre-modern society is a mixture on the sort of political and ideological level of the different ideological narratives that come out of capitalism that come out of feudalism and that come out of a sort of merchantalist shall we say approach and indeed, that's exactly what you find, right? During that period, you have both aristocratic ideologies and sort of proto-liberal capitalist ideologies and other stuff as well, right? So that seems to make sense. Um, so what does that look like here? Um, so let me go to another sort of Marxist analysis. This is Norman K. Gottwald. A hypothesis about social class in monarchic Israel in light of contemporary studies of social class and social stratification. Very Marxist title, I think you'll agree. Um, now, he's looking at ancient Israel, but I think the analysis he does here um, can kind of be mapped on to sort of how these sort of ancient Near East societies were uh, sort of constructed generally. Remember, ancient Israel is sort of a part of this world, and in some ways indifferent, but in other ways is quite structurally similar. So this is quite a sort of Marxist paragraph, bear with me, I'll summarise it, but quote, The ruling class in monarchic Israel extracted surplus in two ways that were systematically connected. A state rent tax, compounded by foreign tribute, was the initial and dominant method of extraction. And just skipping ahead over some, like, really Marxisty stuff, at the same time, the state legitimated the tax rent as payment due to Yahweh's servants, who protected the patrimonies of the free agrarians and the latifunderies, explained their taking possession of indebted lands as the custodians or keepers of the patrimonial shares of those who fell helplessly into debt." End quote. So to boil down a lot of like Marxisty language, what he's essentially saying is there's kind of two interconnected modes of production. So again, the Marxist idea is the worker produces so much, and then sort of someone comes in from on top and claims some of that, and that, that, that's the surplus, right? And so there's two different methods of extracting surplus, as he put it. There's just sort of um, this general top-down tax rent in which sort of landlords live off the people below them and then the state sort of lives off them. That's sort of a, um, a sort of primitive feudal system, right? But then there's also the temple, right? The priests of Yahweh 
as he puts it, which also extracts surplus through offerings to the temple, right? And so if you think about the images we have in our head of the Temple of Jerusalem, you've got lots of people bringing up offerings, and if you read the Old Testament, there's all sorts of stuff in there, but like they sacrificed a cow or a bull or sheep to Yahweh, right? And that can sort of seem something distinctively Jewish, but that's actually quite a common practice in these societies, is temples will receive all of these offerings. But it's not just symbolic. If people are sacrificing animals there, then they'll do something with that meat. They'll claim some for themselves, but they'll also hold feast days. They'll give it out again. It's sort of almost like a hyper-primitive welfare state, right? Now, the Marxist will say, oh, you naive idealists, you just come in and you see the religion and the superstition and, you know, you modern atheists scoff at, um, or how could sacrificing a bull possibly change the weather or improve my wife's fertility? And the Marxist just says, you're completely missing the point. Start with economics. Remember, the first principle of historical materialism is the economic structure, the mode of production comes first. And once you understand that, the, the, the ideological structure is just a reflection. It's an after-the-fact rationalization of that, right? So Gerald West, in a paper I found which walked me through quite a lot of this literature, called Tracking an Ancient Near Eastern Economic System, the Tributary Mode of Production and the Temple State, writes, and this is about Egypt this time, quote, the basic economy within which Egyptian temples played a central role was a local subsistence economy, dictating modes of production, extracting the surplus from peasant farmers in the form of tribute, storing, redistributing what were considered resources of the state. The priests and temple workers were not only exempted from many of the, the obligations that were demanded from other citizens, but also received a share of the daily offerings and controlled the landed possessions of the temple, end quote. So in other words, the Marxist analysis is the huge role that temples played in these societies. So, you know, go back to Ashurbanipal, he had Ashur, right? The god to which he's owing his, his um, legitimacy, and there were huge temples to Ashur and sacrifices that were made. And in Babylon, there's huge temples and sacrifices that are being made. And in, um, we certainly know um, in Israel, right, they had various temples, some got knocked down throughout history and rebuilt. But it was very important for people to make pilgrimages there and give offerings, right? And, you know, looking at it from a religious point of view, you can say, well, this is what they believed and this is why they thought those offerings would help or whatever. And the Marxist just says that's all bells and whistles, right? This is just an economic system. It's a means of extracting surplus from these sort of subsistence farmers. They're just out farming the land, making just enough to sort of, um, you know, survive for themselves. But to the extent that they make more, other people are going to come get it. They're going to come get it in two ways. You know, rent taxes to landlords and offerings to the temple. So to, ma to sort of go back to the beginning, you have two modes of production, the temple and the landlord, right? Now, the Marxist would say, well, what's, what's going to come out of that? What sort of political system 
is going to come out of that? Well, you're going to get two things, right? The temple is going to justify itself by sort of divine right, if you will. The gods, you owe this to the gods, right? Because at the end of the day, all that's happening to the Marxist here is basically theft. You know, the farmer makes a little bit more than he needs to survive and whoop, someone comes and takes it, right? Well, how do they justify that? They're going to say one of two things to that farmer. They're going to say, because I am a representative to the god and if you want the gods to bless your harvest or whatever, you need to make this offering to the temple. Or the sort of landlord class will say, because my forefathers have ruled this land from time immemorial and I am the descendant of so-and-so and you, 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 your forefathers swore fealty to mine and therefore you, you owe me an allegiance, right? And so what's going to emerge at the political level, at the highest level of this society, are political structures whose foundational justification has to appeal to antiquity, to the past, to sort of a hereditary lineage that sort of justifies these aristocratic rules, as well as to the gods, to the temple, to this sort of divine creation and ordering, and doesn't that just make so much sense? Right? I know it's unfashionable to be a direct materialist these days, but doesn't that make just so much sense? Let's, you know, we started with Ashurbanipal, right? What does Ashurbanipal want to tell us? He wants to tell us, I'm in charge because Ashur, the god, put me in charge. And because I have all this lineage and this history behind me, and I'm from the, the noble family and the last king, and the gods smile on all this. Well, the Marxist would just say, yeah, sure, yeah, that, that's exactly what you're inevitably going to get when you have these two modes of production, the sort of temple and the tax extraction. That's what just will naturally, naturally rise up. And I think you can see in this, can you not, why so many people feel like this is their eureka moment. You know, a lot of people with modern economics feel like, oh, once they understood the laws of supply and demand, everything else just made sense in light of them. A lot of people have felt and still do feel this way about historical materialism. Like, oh, once I got it that it's just the economic structure and everything else is just a follow-on, well, then everything else made so much sense. So... I've given an account that if you look at the world through that pair of glasses, a certain amount of sense, at least of the ancient world, the ancient Near East, a certain amount of sense is there to be had. Well, let's shift classes then. What might it look like through a more idealist conception? Idealist, again, simply here meaning that ideas come first and structures come second. Well, let me apply a framework that isn't pure idealist, it's a bit of a mixture, it says both ideas and structures matter, but it's something I've been influenced by and I like a lot, and by applying it to this context, I'm probably applying it to a context that it's not really meant for, but, you know, to heck with it, let's give it a go and see how it looks. So, I'm going to apply some ideas from the sort of latter thought of Michael Frieden to this. So, by the way, there's sort of three periods to freedom. The early one is looking at liberalism, the mid-period is looking at different political ideologies, and then the final one is looking at what the sort of nature of the political is in general. 
But Michael Frieden is a thinker who starts with looking at ideas and what the structure of ideas is and the work that they do in the world. Again, I wouldn't call him a pure idealist, but definitely way more of an idealist than the Marxist account. And I think here's the first basic shift from the Marxist. The Marxist says the fundamental thing is the underlying economic structure, in their language, the mode of production. Well, we're looking at politics, are we not? So how about instead of the fundamental thing about political systems is economic, how about we start by saying the fundamental thing we're going to start by looking at when we look at politics is politics. That makes sense, right? Let's start with the political. Well, what is the political? There's many different features of the political, according to this framework, the next one that I'm bringing in. But, but what, what is it? Well, at a first pass, the political is the domain of contestation. The political is just a way we can sort of say, this is the arena in which different ideas different policies, different practices are being contested. And the political is, is inevitable. There's always going to be decisions to be made, unclear ways of proceeding. Now, to put this in the context of the ancient Fertile Crescent, this is a huge cauldron of so many different identities and tribes and civilizations. We've talked about the Assyrians, the Persians will come in a little bit later, but you have the you have the Babylonians, you have the Elamites, you have the Medes, you have the Hittites, you have the Philistines, you have all of these different groups swirling around in a way that makes it almost incomprehensible to the modern historian, all as we've already seen with their Genesis myths, all with their competing hereditary hierarchies, all with different value systems and languages and ethnic and religious identities, and all making mutually incompatible claims to, to political power, right? So there has to be ordering mechanisms to this, not because everyone's going to sit down and agree to like some sort of social contract, but because at the end of the day, either it's going to be the um, Elamites or the Assyrians, like so the outcomes have to be reached. Now, these sorts of competitions between all of these different groups for control, right, that's what political competition is about. It's about control. It's about, in this space of contestation, someone establishing some final ordering. Someone saying, this is the way that we're doing things, right? And you can sort of see all of these different groups in the ancient Fertile Crescent saying, no, it's going to be this way, no, it's going to be that way, it's our religion, it's yours, it's our prince, it's your prince. Um, at first pass they can appear to be rival claims over territory, which they certainly are. We want this land. No, no, we want it, right? And one of the moves that Frieden makes is to say that, yes, their controls over space, space, spatial in his terms, but behind that and before that, these are disputes about time. And I'm going to try to tie this to some of the sort of propaganda claims that Ashurbanipal makes. But just to give you a flavour of how he argues it, 
This is from The Political Theory of Political Thinking, The Anatomy of a Practice, by Frieden. And he writes, quote, We have been used to consider questions of political ultimate control as spatial, referring to territorial borders and what happens in them, outside of them, at them, and to them, as well as incorporating some spatial fluidity. While maintaining the importance of spatial boundaries, the argument here is that they cannot, on their own, contain the central political concern with finality, which has prior recourse to temporality as the determiner of last resort, feature of political language. Although time and space often operate in tandem in the language of political control, the fundamental idea of political finality should be conceived of as a claim to monopolistic primacy, crouched in broadly temporal, not spatial, terms. Time has the edge over space in the conceptual baseline of political discourse. End quote. Okay, so what does that mean? Let me try and break this down. Say you've got two different, you know, groups in the ancient Fertile Crescent, and they're both competing over a territory. And one says, we should rule this, and the other said, we should rule this. And why? What, what do you have there, other than an assertion of, you know, we have more people? But the fact that you have more people means that you've made some sort of rallying cry. You've got them on your side. What's your argument to get them on your side. And usually it's, some, it's, it's more to do with time than to do with space. Your argument is, this land was ruled by my ancestors. I am the legitimate king. Well, what does legitimate king mean? It usually means you were the one who um, you know, has the hereditary lineage, you're the rightful heir, and so on. So in other words, behind these competitions over the control of space, there's almost always competitions over the role of time. You're not just trying to secure a territory, you're trying to secure a timeline. Because after all, even if it just comes down to brute force and who has the bigger army, you have to create a case for having that army. You have to have a narrative to, to, to bring them to you, right? Now, to, to Marx, this sort of like hereditary language is a sort of specific feature that's going to arise from particular modes of production. To Frieden, this, this trying to control a timeline is actually a universal feature of all political debate. And so go through to the modern time, and what do so many of our political debates actually boil down to? They boil down to controls over a timeline. This is constitutional. What does that mean, right? You're, you're going back to a past. That past may well be mythical, but you're saying this timeline is ours. If you look at my libertarian series, I talked about how it's been so important for both progressive liberals and libertarians to say, we are the real heirs to liberalism. Libertarians say this all the time, right? We're the real classical liberals. They're competing over a timeline. And so the finality in politics, the final moment where the buck stops here, 
is a moment of historical creation. Again, may well be mythical. If you think about, like, the narratives we tell about the founding of the America and the Constitution and so on, these might not match up perfectly with history, but it's a starting point. It's where authority begins rather than when it stops. And so what about if you have a system where there is no civil myth, i.e. the Constitution and the founding of the country and all that, then what serves as that final point? Because the, the, the question is, what, what happens if you just keep asking why? I should be in charge of this land. Why? Because I've got the bigger army. Well, why should they follow you? Why shouldn't they follow me? Well, because um, I'm the, the rightful king. Why? Because my father was king. Why? Where do you get, right? You need a, a final backstop. may not be rational, may not be reasonable, but the argument is politics needs what Frieden calls big bangs, moments beyond which there is no appeal. Now, in our secularized politics, the Constitution and the founding of America and the Bill of Rights are sort of a secular big bang. They're a moment by which, you know, the end of the argument is it's constitutional. And if you ask why again, you're told, because it's constitutional, right? Where do you finally get to? What's your final prior, right? And so, Frieden says, this is all, you know, it's not that there's two different structures and one justifies hierarchy and one justifies religion. Actually, religion is an inescapable part of justifying these sorts of hierarchies. So, again, quoting from the same book, quote, all this begins with the idea of God, especially in monotheistic religions, for, whatever else God is, he is an undiluted political entity, signifying the idea of the political as fons et origo, at least with regard to human conduct and social affairs. That is starkly asserted in the New Testament, quote, In the beginning, there was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The triple sequence in which temporality is associated with language, language is associated with divinity, and then in a process of ultimate fusion is identified with God, denotes that aspect of thinking politically that brooks no deference, and that is the subject of this chapter." End quote. So, in other words, you if politics is, is, at least in part, going to always resort to trying to control a timeline, there has to be something at the beginning of that timeline. It can't just go back into an infinite regress. If you're saying this because my father said so and because his father said so, at some point there's got to be a full stop to that conversation. And God is a full stop to that conversation. God is the full stop. And that's the purpose that religion serves in hereditary systems. So again, from Frieden, later on in that chapter, quote, The divine right of kings was predicated on a key temporal principle. Hereditary right is indefeasible. Obedience to the sovereign is underpinned by a fundamental hereditary right of succession, which no religion, no law, no fault or forfeiture can alter or diminish. It too demonstrates the idea that sovereignty cannot be reduced to just a top-down concept. 
concerning superiority or inferiority, or to first exclusive territorial control, as is often portrayed. It also contains a first subsequent dimension, whose temporality is logically prior to its spatiality, end quote. Okay, so what does that mean? It essentially means that you can't just reduce top-down systems of control to a vertical hierarchy. That, that they, they will necessarily, or to just control over space, they will necessarily, to underpin that, have to seize control over time. Well, again, doesn't that make so much sense? Let's look at this again. Ashurbanipal, Naramsar, all of these ancient rulers of the Near East are obsessed with establishing timelines, right? These are top-down systems of control, don't get me wrong, there is nothing democratic, there are no, you know, as a Republican would say, these are systems of domination, right? There's no liberal human rights to be found here, right? But in other words, why can't they let the past alone? Why are they so obsessed with it? Well, unlike the Marxist view, this framework would say, well, look, this is actually a universal feature of the political. In our time, we make arguments about the Constitution. A lawyer in court will stand up and say, I cite precedent, right? Top-down hierarchical power, as well as power over particular space, actually necessitates power over time. And if you're going to have power over time, you often need a start point. It's a control over the beginning of things. And in that, in a world where you don't have these secular founding moments, perhaps you need a religious founding moment. Hence, Ashurbanipal begins his thing saying, the first words out of his mouth, I am a creature of Ashur. You know, the, the God came in. And that's what you would call a political Big Bang. It's a moment behind which there is no appeal. There's no, there's no one justifying the God Ashur. The God Ashur justifies himself. There's no appeal beyond that. It's not ours to reason why about the will of the gods. And so what you have here is not something that's foreordained by the economic structure, though it's, you know, certainly influenced by it, you have the competition between different ideas about top-down control, different ideas about who should rule. Again, look, look at the ancient um, Fertile Crescent. You've got all these different groups competing, right, of which the Assyrians will eventually win out. But ultimately, at the heart of it, they're all trying to lay control over a timeline. They're all trying to say, you know, this is the legitimate timeline, and this is sort of the, the big bang that grounds it, the divine intervention past which there is no appeal. And who's going to win? Well, it's not promised to anyone. The one who makes the case best, right? The one who gets the most people to their side, the one who's able to use that story to make their society cohesive, to make it able to compete against other societies, and to make those other societies accept that rule once it's been established. So what you end up with isn't inevitable. It's a set of ideas that it's shown itself to have real-world traction and real-world ability to bind societies together and to impose its will on other societies. 
Which is not to say that the idea that triumphs in that competition is necessarily logically correct or morally correct, but that ideas matter, and that politics is the competition between these different narratives. And that what we see with the Assyrians is the ultimate narrative that, that won out, the one that really made its claim that ours is the, is the correct timeline, and that our grounding of that timeline, our like shortstop behind that timeline, is the right one. And in that case, is it any wonder that its rulers were obsessed with history? Absolutely obsessed by it. Well, no. And so again, completely different to the Marxist. But again, that makes a shitload of sense to me. Like, once you take, you, you accept the idea that you can take the glasses off and put them back on again, again, it, you know, that pair of glasses makes sense to me as a narrative for the ancient Near East, even though the narrative I'm giving you was from the European Middle Ages. I'm not sure how Frieden would feel about me using his narrative like that. And indeed, there are elements where this narrative doesn't quite fit. And one of them is religion, and it doesn't fit with the Marxist one either. So, one point which I'm going to keep coming back to in this series is I think people at this time conceived of their gods very differently to we do. Um, God, in the sense that we've been discussing, is kind of a first cause, an originator of the process, and is much more physically removed from the universe. God exists in the heavens, right? God, there wasn't the natural supernatural divide in the ancient world. Gods existed in the world, right? And they intervened in the world. And then the next passage I'm going to read you from Ashurbanipal, you can sort of see him obeying and responding to direct commands from the gods. Gods were also much more physically embodied, and I'm going to cover this more in the next episode. But often, they wouldn't make the distinction between statues of gods and gods. And you'll see that in the next passage, that often they conceived of the sort of statue or the physical manifestation of a god as the god itself, right? So the next bit we're going to look at is Assyria had this big empire, it had its central territory, which is Assyria, and then there's various layers outwards in various states of domination. So did they merely, you know, pay homage to the great king? Did they um, have to give tribute? Did they have a puppet ruler come in? Did they have the Assyrians come in and just kill everybody? Did um, Assyria actually take over it directly and administer it as a district? And, you know, everything around them was in, you know, various states of control. And again and again, people would keep rebelling. So we have endless chronicles from Ashurbanipal of how, you know, I went and I did this and I put down the rebellion. And this guy seems to have had probably the most formidable army in the history of the world to this point. An Assyrian field army was 50,000 men. And you know, they had multiple field armies at once, so the total strength of their military could have been 150,000, maybe even a quarter of a million men. Now, these are huge numbers for 
the pre-modern period, if you think about the Middle Ages, the biggest battles, like I think the Battle of Hastings, which decided British history, neither side had more than 10,000 men. So again, this Marxist idea that they're wasting their surplus and they're not really putting it towards anything seems just wholly and completely wrong. They've found a, a form of civilizational structure that will allow them to field professional year-round armies like this in a way that will only be matched by the Roman Empire and then won't really be seen again, you know, outside of China maybe, until the era of modern nation-states. So anyway, absolutely formidable military. Let's go back to Ashurbanipal in his own words, describing one of his campaigns against the Elamites. So these are a people that he's going to crush completely, who live in, I think, like modern-day Iran. And this is part of a campaign where he crushes several rebellions. So the Babylonians, who are the sort of precedent civilization that they admire as their elders in some way, he's put his brother on the throne of Babylon, and his brothers rebelled against him, and in this sort of neighbouring land of Elam, I said, you know, we want in on this, we're getting in on this, and this is actually um, at the tail end of like seven, eight, nine campaigns crushing different rebellions in um, different parts of the empire. And so this is Ashurbanipal, in his own words, describing what he did when he beat the Elamites. Now, I want you to notice two things. One is the very direct and very, as Frieden would say, temporally located role of the gods in this. And the other is just the tone in which it is written. So, um, direct quote from Ashurbanipal. The ziggurat of Susa, which was built of enameled bricks, I destroyed. Its pinnacles, which were shining bronze, I broke down. Shashank their god of revelation, who dwells in seclusion, the workmanship of divinity no one has ever seen, the gods Shuduru, Ligamaru, Paturika, Ashamakaba, Uduran, Sparak, whose divinity the kings of Elam worshipped, Rabakara, Sunagaras, Kasa, Kismaras, Sudanshu, Apishanka, Bila, Pilamtri, Nibatru, Kindaru, with their paraphernalia, their property, their vessels, as well as their priests and attendants, I carried off to Assyria. Thirty-two statues of kings, made of gold, silver, bronze, and marbles, out of the cities of Susa, Mikatu, and Hudratu, together with the statue of Ungaresh, son of Umbara, the statue of Ishtaramai, the statue of Halasi, the statue of Tamaritu, the latter, the second, who became my servant in the command of Ashur and Ishtar, I carried off to Assyria. I carried off together the Colossi, the guardians of the temple, all that there were. I removed the fierce wild oxen which adorned their gates. The sanctuaries of Elam I destroyed totally. Its gods and goddesses I scattered to the winds, their secret groves into which no stranger ever penetrates. Those borders he never oversteps. Into these my soldiers entered, saw their mysteries, and set them on fire. The sculptures of their earlier and later kings, 
who did not fear Asher and Ishtar, my lords, and who had plagued my kings, my fathers, I destroyed, I devastated, I disposed, I exposed to the sun. Their bones I carried off to Assyria. I laid restless upon their shades. I deprived them of food offerings and libations of water. For a distance of a month and twenty-five days' journey, I devastated the provinces of Elam. Salt and thorn bushes I scattered over them, the daughters of the kings, the sisters of the kings, together with older and younger members of families of the Elamite kings, the prefects and mayors of all those cities I had conquered, the chiefs of the bowmen, the seconds, the drivers, the thirds, the horsemen, the light-armed bowmen, the captain bowmen, and the whole army. All these were the people, male, female, great, small, horses, mules, asses, sheep, cattle, which were more numerous than grasshoppers, I carried off to Assyria. The dust of Susa, Makadu, Hatamesh, and the rest of their cities, I gathered to together and took off to Assyria. In a month of days, I ravaged Elam to its farthest borders. The noise of people the tread of cattle and sheep, the glad shouts of rejoicing. I put an end to all of that. Wild asses, gazelles, beasts of all kinds in the plain, I caused them to lie down in it as if it were their home. The goddess Nana, who had been angry for years, and who had gone and dwelt in Elam, a place not suitable for her now in these days, when she and her gods, her fathers, named me the rulership of the lands, she entrusted me to the return of her divinity with the words, Ashurbanipal shall bring me out of wicked Lilam and bring me into Anana. The spoken words of their divinities, which they had uttered in days of the remote past, they now revealed to the people in their later days. The hands of her high divinity I grasped, and she took it straight to the road to Anana, in joy in heart. In the month of Kilmasu, in the first day, I brought her in and caused her to take up the eternal bode in the temple Alana, which she loves. End quote. Okay, so what do you make of all of that? One point which I just want to mention right off the bat is we tend to have a view, and this comes from Marxist ideology, well, Marxist theory, I should say, that ideology essentially protect, is like a covering function. It sort of covers up the underlying operation of power. In other words, power does its thing, and ideology disguises it. Well, one thing I really want to note is where's the disguise there? He's openly boasting about just slaughtering cities of people. He's proud of this. He put it on his monuments. There's none of that. And I just, like, again, I find it interesting. So this isn't a story about how elites actually are real, you know, idealists and believe in what they say or whatever. It's a story about the role ideology plays. And ideology here seems to be doing something very different. When people commit war crimes in the modern world, they don't brag about them, right? Something different is going on here right? The other, and I'm going to return to this point in the next episode, is the direct role of the gods. 
The god told me to do this. The god was angry about this. And the temporal location of the gods. The god went and dwelled here. The god went and dwelled there. Right? Now, what in general are we to make of this? Because the Assyrians are notorious for this. There's pages and pages of this. A very, very violent domination. And really excessive. He's going to talk in other parts about, I flayed people alive. He's going to talk about cutting out their tongues. Now, this is a little bit of an aside. But is there something counterintuitive to you about the bookworm who loves history and built his own library? And then is just reveling in all the people he's killed. Because I think in the modern world, we think about physical violence and academic learning as kind of different things somehow. Like when I say the bookworm, you kind of think about someone effete, effeminate, kind of a little bit scared and timid of rough and tumble manly stuff. And if you think about someone who would pull people's tongues out of their mouths, you don't think about the bookworm. But to the ancient mind, that's all different. Ashurbanipal wants people to know he's both. And this is sort of what I find fascinating about the guys. You see um, these big stone carvings of him slaying lions and stuff. But as he's doing it, there's two styluses in his belt. So at any time, he can stop and jot down some notes. And that's just not an image I've ever seen a modern ruler want to portray, really, or... You know, maybe some real crackpot dictator, but this guy's no crackpot. Like, he rules the world, you know? And I think there can be, even if we're not going to go with the rational self-interest model, a reduction of everything to pragmatism. So a lot of people will say about this, well, look, you've got this huge swirling chaos of the ancient Fertile Crescent. And you've got this civilization that has accomplished some wonderful things. It's not that the Assyrians are evil, even though a lot of their stuff that they're doing and that they're openly bragging about doing sounds pretty damn evil to us. That was just what was necessary. There was a real politique purpose to this, which is, look, you've got to be, keep people scared and in line. And it's just like we're setting up a credible deterrent, right? We know that... People are going to be inclined to rebel because we're extracting tribute from them and we're using it to fund all of our cultural achievements and these big, huge, fantastic armies that we've talked about. This just has to be part of the deal and that there's nothing else there. And I think that the fact that a lot of people really want to insist that there's nothing else there makes me sort of inclined to believe that there is something else there. Now, the first thing to say here is that this practice of just slaughtering cities wholesale, and also this practice which we don't really do in the modern world, even the worst of dictators, where he said, I carried them off to Assyria. This is quite a common practice in the ancient Fertile Crescent. When you conquer a territory, one way of subduing it is to just transport its people, all of them, or like a large proportion of them, wholesale, and dump them somewhere else. A lot of peoples did this. And as we'll see, people did it after the fall of Assyria. And so you conquer Elam, you devastate its cities, you ravage its land, you brutally torture all of its leaders. And you say, okay, all of the population, you guys might be trouble, 
so we're going to dump you somewhere else. Stalin did stuff like this in um, the, the old Soviet Union. Now, there's sort of, well, at least two ways you can look at this. One is the way we tend to just flatten out all of history to sort of rational self-interest, or at best to sort of, like, pragmatism. And, you know, the story I just gave you. Assyria's doing what it needs to do to keep Assyria going. There's another narrative, which is this idea I refer to as my sort of neo-Machiavellian theory, which is the idea that people like this. Now... I should say, Machiavelli himself, when he looks back on this, doesn't take that view. Machiavelli takes the view that this is, you know, this is realpolitik. And he sort of, well, let me just read you what he says. This is from um, the discourses, and he talks about the sort of practices which Ashurbanipal has just bragged about. So, quoting Machiavelli, quote, Whosoever becomes prince of a city or state, more especially if his position is so insecure that he cannot resort to constitutional government, either in the form of a republic or monarchy, will find that the best way to preserve his princedom is to renew the whole institutions of the state. That is to say, create new magistries with new names, confer new powers and employ new men, and like David did when he became king, exalt the humble and depress the great, filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty. Moreover, he must pull down existing towns and rebuild them, removing their inhabitants from one place to another. In short, nothing in the country can be left as he found it, so that there shall be neither rank, nor condition, nor honour, which its professor can refer to from any but him. And he must take example from Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander, who by means such as these, from becoming a petty prince, became monarch of all of Greece, and from whom it was written that he shifted men from province to province, as a man, as a shepherd moves his flocks from one pasture to another. These are indeed most cruel expedients, contrary merely not to every Christian, but every civilised rule of conduct, and such as every man should shun, choosing rather to lead a private life than to be king on terms so hurtful to mankind. But he will not keep to the fair path of virtue, must maintain himself and enter this path of evil. End quote. So, that's classic Machiavellian Machiavelli. Right? Now, I want to push back on that a little, from a theory which is an extrapolation of Machiavelli, but not reducible to the historic Machiavelli. For a start, let's grant a certain amount of it. You know, when you conquer a new territory, you can't just come in and leave it as it was, or it's just going to rebel again, right? Okay, I can see that. Um, maybe even the whole, this, this wholesale deportation of tens of thousands of people, as ugly as that is, Maybe there's some realpolitik purpose to that, but the ritualized torture of them, the sort of, the Assyrians would do stuff like make the father watch his own sons be put to death and then put out his eyes so it was the last thing he ever saw. They're sort of like psychological twists, right? When Elam was conquered, he made one of the generals march all the way back home with the head of the Elamite king on a chain around his neck. What a, 
incredibly psychologically traumatizing experience that must have been. And what's more, when we look at the devastation of Elam, it really seems like there was no ulterior motive. So um, the historian Susan Wise Bauer writes, quote, Ashurbanipal did not rebuild after wrecking the country. He installed no governors. He resettled none of the devastated cities. He made no attempt to make this a new province of Assyria, more than just as a wasteland. Elam lay open and undefended. End quote. Now, according to this sort of like pragmatist, rational self-interest view, you know, maybe there's a, a reason for that. But there's an instinct to this view, which is essentially that anything other than a pragmatist explanation is kind of naive. It's kind of naive to think that these ancient rulers were motivated by anything other than pragmatism. It's certainly naive to think that they um, really believed in their sort of ideological convictions. Certainly naive to think they ever did anything benevolent. Certainly naive to think that they did these terrible things for other reasons. But when you look at something like this, isn't it kind of naive to think that it's it's not possible that people did these sorts of things because they enjoyed it? Now, just be really introspectively honest for a minute. What's the worst thing you've ever fantasized about doing to another human being? Not that you did, right? But what have you fantasized about doing? Someone humiliated you who harmed you. Not to be too cringe about it, but like, what's... And again, not that you ever acted on it, but what's the worst thing you've ever fantasized about sexually, right? Either doing to someone, having done to you. You, you know, what have you thought about doing to your high school bully, right? What have you... Let me put it this way. A lot of people put these constraints up, but then they fall away in certain circumstances. Would you ever torture someone? Well, no, of course not, right? And then there's a pause. And then there's a but. What if they'd done something to your child? Then it's a little different, right? But that's necessity. That's something I would have to do, right? Well, again, we put these ideological constraints around our deeper, darker instincts, but what if there was a world in which those ideological constraints were radically different? Is it so crazy to think that people enjoyed this? They, they got off on I mean, listen to his tone. He's thrilled by it. He's proud of it. He loves the fact that he devastated the districts of Elam. The happy shouts of in the field. I put an end to all of that. I flayed people alive. Is that so crazy to think? Now, here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that human beings have this, like, innate, primal, animalistic nature, but that's been tempered down by civilization and repressed and, um, you know, we all feel it in our hearts, but uh, we don't act on it, whereas these uncivilized people in the past, they acted on it. 
I don't mean that. I think that's an insulting idea, and I think it's an idea that, like, makes people in the past seem inferior to us. What I'm saying is just maybe the ideological constraints are just different. Um, and you see that with, like, modern humanization. Like, oh, to take an obvious case, look at everything the Nazis did, right? Now, we again think, yeah, but, like, these were just sort of decent, civilized people, but then this external factor, this poisonous ideology that told them Jews and uh, Roma and Eastern Europeans were less than human, and that external idea, yeah, that, that thing came in that, that made them behave badly. But let's just think about today. Think about how we treat prisoners in America, right? Now, they're on the other side of an ideological divide. They deserve punishment. And we laugh about it, right? We revel in it. We enjoy it. There's been some wonderful uh, social justice work done on just how pervasive the idea of, like, getting raped in prison is, which is one of the most awful things that can happen to another human being. But how many times have you heard a joke about the prison showers? Completely light-hearted, no analysis, just thrown into the conversation. You see this all the time in popular culture, right? Now, maybe you would say, okay, that's wrong. Okay, I don't, I don't agree with that. Probably we shouldn't, shouldn't be, be doing it. But then... What about a violent pedophile? Now, we all understand that sex offenders, particularly sex offenders against children, suffer a particularly hard time in prison. And we're all sort of okay with that, right? Like, we, we understand they are going to receive, or likely receive, like, real physical violence. They're essentially going to be tortured in there. They're just the most awful things are going to be done to them. And I think there's some gut instinct. And look, I'm not judging people here. I share this gut instinct in some way that looks at that and thinks, good, screw them. You know? Shouldn't have done what they did. Um, well, is that instinct any different than the one I'm saying? Yeah, could plausibly have existed in these ancient peoples. And you'll say, well, but look, um, being a violent pedophile is very different from simply happening to be an Elamite. Well, that's just to say that your ideological justification is different, right? We create these boundaries of when it's appropriate to, to exercise, to, 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 to give free rein to our darker impulses, our desire to dominate other people, our desire to humiliate other people, our desire to enjoy the pain of other people, right? Which are not long repressed by civilization and given a free reign in the ancient world. They just exist on different things. We sort of feel like, at some level, we enjoy the fact that violent pedophiles really suffer in prisons. We enjoy it. And at some level, we think it's okay to enjoy it. But if someone insulted your religion, if someone said, screw the Pope, or whatever, no, it's not okay to torture that person. Now, to Ashurbanipal, that's probably the other way round. He probably wouldn't care too much about sleeping with children. Indeed, that was quite normal in a lot of parts of the age. Certainly normal in ancient Greece, right? It was, it was actually mandatory in some parts of ancient Greece. But... If someone defies the god Ashur, then he would feel 
the same way about that person, and the people around him would feel, the sort of elites of Assyria, and maybe even the entire army of Assyria, would feel about that person the way we feel about the violent sex offender. Is it that crazy to believe that that was actually the motivation? And in this, in this, we come to a final way, which I'm going to be exploring throughout this whole series, of understanding the, the behaviour of elites, which is to say there is a through line, there is a common thing that, that, that we can see as being consistent in what elites believe and how they behave throughout all of history. But it's not some reflection of the, the economic structure, it's not this thing about, like, ideological competition. Elites desire to dominate. They desire the, to have the power to do anything they want to human beings below them, and they like to exercise that power. That the desire to dominate runs through clean cuts all of the history that we're going to be talking about. And in turn, the desire not to be dominated, not to be humiliated, not to, certainly not to be violently repressed, runs back on the other side. And although that's a, a, a through line, it's very different to the idea of rational self-interest, because the, the need to dominate... And domination can take different forms, by the way. I'm going to explore later in the series symbolic forms of domination as opposed to violent forms of domination. But the need to dominate runs through. And the need to dominate often isn't rational, right? Like, if you think about it, like, did maybe this like campaign go too far? Actually, was there another course of action which certainly wouldn't have been fully moral or upheld itself to human rights law, but was there another way of dealing with that that actually would have served Ashurbanipal's long-term power, his sort of stability of the state, his financial interests, his, his rational self-interest, right? Um, is there a way of handling it that would have served that better? And the answer surely has to be, well, yeah, probably and this is, this is what I think makes so much sense about this approach, is elites often do not behave rationally. They often go too far. They often insist on forms of subservience to them, be it violent or be it symbolic, and we're going to explore the symbolic ones in the next part, that don't serve their interests. They're often unwilling to share power, even when so doing, would serve their rational self-interests. And if you look at the other side of it, the behaviour of the people being dominated certainly does not conform to rational self-interest. Why did the Babylonians rebel, right? Because there's been many, many rebellions before. Like, Ashurbanipal's like, primary sources are just him putting down one of these things. One after the other. And when he dies, not that long after this, they're going to rebel again. Now, if the theory goes that he does this terrible stuff because it, it'll sort of deter the will of people to rebel, that sort of works in rational self-interest terms, right? If I'm saying, okay, maybe I'm um, jotting it all up. I've got this much to gain by rebelling. I've got, um, what have I got to lose? Um, oh yeah, flayed alive. <laughs> 
the potential rewards have to be vast. And what's more, your perceived probability of success has to be overwhelming for that to be a rational decision, and yet they keep doing it. So if the rational self-interest pragmatic theory doesn't really cover this sort of repression, it certainly doesn't cover these repeated futile attempts to resist it. And just, again, be introspectively honest. When someone's bullied you, again, in a much more minor way than this, of course, but when someone's bullied you, when you feel dominated, when you feel humiliated, where do you go to in your head? You don't go to a rational calculation, you go to anger, right? Now, there is sort of a rational explanation here that maybe the tributes Assyria put on was too high and the rulers felt they had to rebel in order to placate their nobles who were whining about too high taxes, but it just doesn't make sense because they killed all of the nobles as well and they tortured them to death. So, like, if I'm doing a rational self-interest and I'm an elite in Babylon or in Elam, I'm going to go high taxes... But, you know, stuff that I still am one of the elite, I still have a comfortable standard of living, but I could be a lot more wealthy if I rebelled. But if I rebelled, it's got to be odds on, like far greater than 50%, that I'll be tortured to death. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pay the bloody taxes, right? But they don't. And I think, again, here, the idea of a through line where the fundamental dynamic isn't these pragmatic considerations, isn't these rational interest considerations. The fundamental mechanic is people want to put people under them, either violently or otherwise, and people hate that. They can't stand it, and they lash out against it violently and irrationally. And you are so going to be able to see that in what's coming to Assyria. So he's conquered Babylon, shipped many of its people off. He's gone and just laid waste to this um, land of Elam, completely left it as a wasteland. And a new people are going to come in and settle it called the Medes, who are going to be relevant to our story later as we get towards the Persians. And that finally puts down many of the rebellions. But after that, Ashurbanipal dies. And what happens when he dies is, and like I said, he's the last great ruler, so what's coming next, is what looks like happened, and we don't have all the sources for this, is two of his sons went to war with each other for the throne. Now, this is sort of like an old joke in military history, right? How do you defeat the greatest army in the world? Well, you split it in half and make it fight itself, right? And in that, the Babylonians are like, Hell yeah, our time to rebel again. Like the third time they've been put, <laughs> had one of these put down in living memory. And that, again, doesn't fit a rational self-interest model. So there's a long history here that I won't go through, but they're going to march out, they're going to fight some battles. The Medes, this new people that have settled the land of Elam, the modern-day Iran, are going to rise up again. Um, they're going to take and sack the city of Ashur, one of the capitals. And then they're going to form an alliance and march on Nineveh, the old capital, 
you know, really huge, beautiful, one of the most sort of ornate cosmopolitan cities in the world, the sort of seat of, like, art and learning and this great library, but also the place where all of these captives have been taken, all of the the treasures, the bones of their kings, the, the images of their gods, which, again, these people understood as their gods, and they get joined by a third force. And I'm sort of truncating all the, the history here, but out to the east on the sort of Central Asian steppe, there's these sort of nomadic peoples that get called the Umanmonga, which literally means the horde from who knows where, which isn't that a great name for you. And they've always been a, a sort of pain in the ass for Assyria. I think something like the Dothraki from Game of Thrones, although that, people hate that historical analogy and it's not strictly right, but this huge invading horde comes in looking for spoils. And together with the Medes and the Babylonians, apparently they have to fight three battles to get there. You know, this Assyrian army that's destroyed itself by turning on itself, this, the lions of Assyria still able to put up three huge fights. You know, they get to Nineveh, and we have a fragmentary Babylonian record of what happens here. So it doesn't quite read right, because imagine like a clay tablet with like bits missing and so on. But this is what the Babylonians say about this. Quote, A mighty assault he made upon the city. In the month of Abu, the city was taken. A great slaughter was made of the people and nobles. On that day, Shing Shah Ishkran, king of Assyria, fled from the city. Great, great quantities of spoil from the city, beyond counting they carried off, the city into a mound and a ruin heap, end quote. So you can hear it doesn't quite read right, but the punchline is what happened to Assyria, their capital, in the end is what they had done to so many other people. And, you know, you can have sympathy for the, all of the people and servants and tradespeople and artisans who are just going to be slaughtered or taken off or whatever. But there's no ideology on the other side that says, oh, the Assyrians are terrible and we need to stop this practice of slaughtering people when they take their cities. We're going to get ours. And beyond these sort of terse Babylonian fragmentary records, we actually have a document which some people think is a first-hand source, like someone who saw this or was near this describing what the fall of this city looked like, this city that had dominated, like really violently dominated the rest of this entire civilizational region for so long. And it's written in kind of a way that's not quite how we would write it today. But I think when you read this, you can feel some of that emotion, some of that anger. None of this reads like pragmatism, to me at least. So let me read you um, at length from someone who may well have been a, a contemporary of this. Quote, Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves. They beat on their breasts. Nineveh is a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. 
hearts melt, knees give away, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and the lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs, and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill, and his dens with the prey. I am against you, says the god. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of the whips, the clatter of the wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry and flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of the dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring, the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations with her prostitution, and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the god. I will lift your skirts over your face, I will show the nations your nakedness, and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth, I will treat you with contempt, and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh in, is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? End quote. And so even through all the old-timey language, and even through the slightly weird way that's laid out, you can feel the emotion in that, right? You can feel the, you have been putting us under for so long, and now it is your turn. Now that we have the position, we are now going to enjoy this. And that's an interesting facet of this Machiavellian model of domination and the need to, to resist it, is that there's no equilibrium point. Machiavelli says men strive after honours and first seek to resist being dominated and then seek to dominate. And you can see there's no middle point here. You can see that as soon as they get out from under the yoke of Assyria, as they put it, now it is their turn. And the imagery is just vile, isn't it? Like like the sack of Nineveh, which is like a, a genocide by today's terms, is conceived of as an act of sexual violence. Nineveh is compared to a prostitute. And again... Isn't it a bit naive to look at that and go, well, yeah, that's just like propaganda on behalf of people exploiting an economic structure or whatever? Isn't there actually a beating heart to history? And doesn't that narrative just feel more real? So those are three of the big narratives we're going to be looking at here. And none of them, by the way, are sort of really meant to be applied to this time period. And the people who developed these narratives didn't apply them to these, this time period. But I'm going to be applying them to this time period. And as I go through, I'm going to be looking and going, OK, what would a Marxist say here? What would like a modern ideological theory say here? And what does this story about domination and the anger people feel about being dominated, how would... How would that look at it? And we're going to go forward in the story because, of course, Nineveh falling 
isn't the end of the story if I had, like, if I was making a Game of Thrones type thing. That would definitely be the season finale, but then there's definitely some exciting stuff coming up in the next season, because the world's going to devolve. There, ha there was one great power in the world, and now there's going to be different powers. The Babylonians have re-established a new Babylonian dynasty. This new people, the Medes, they're going to take over from where the Elamites were in, 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 in uh, modern-day Iran. Another people um, are going to come to take over modern Turkey. Um, Egypt, of course, is now independent. So you're going to have a multi-power world, and they're all going to behave to each other in the exact way that the Assyrians behaved towards them. Now, final question before we end. That last source I read you, probably the most visceral and violent and, and angry and emotional source that we've looked at the whole time. Where was... You, any guesses where that was from? I changed one word just to sort of read you the source and give it to you without the context. The word I changed was the god, which is quite a common, you know, ancient Fertile Crescent way of putting things, the god. Um, in the original, it would be Yahweh, Lord of Hosts. So this is a Jewish prophet called Nahum, and it's one of the books of the Old Testament. The thing I just read you is, is in the Bible, right? And a people who are not particularly politically significant at this time, if I talked about, you know, we're going to go into a world with like three or four great powers... Um, the, the kingdom of Judah is like a, a second or third-rate power. It was made a sort of vassal state by the, um, by the Assyrians. Now that the Assyrians are gone, it's going to try and exert its independence. It's not a political player in these days, but it's interesting for our story because so much of our current world has been filtered through the narrative of the Abrahamic religions, right? Now... In this new world, where Assyria's gone and there's many people competing and there's this sort of power vacuum, you're going to see the same game being played of slaughtering cities, of taking their populations and just depositing them somewhere else. And that's what's going to happen to the Jews, or some significant number of them. They're going to get on the wrong side of a Babylonian king, and a big chunk of that population is just going to be deported off to Babylon. So now the history starts to line up with the biblical history that we're all used to, right? If you see that. And that's where we're going to pick up next time. We're going to pick up in a world, a power vacuum created by Assyria being gone. We're going to look at the different claims we made. And we're going to look at this extraordinary figure of Cyrus, who's going to come in and do some things that are historically and ideologically absolutely unprecedented in the history of the in the history of humanity, and what sen and ask what sense can be made of them. Which of these paradigms works there? All that and more next time. Mm -hmm.